Ladies, I want to welcome all of you to Women in the Word this morning. I'm amazed that so many of you are here because, have you seen the weather? <laughs> I am honored that you would show up this morning to study the Word of God with me. And if I sound at all like I spent the night in a smoke-filled bar, I didn't. <laughs> I spent yesterday in my front yard in my flower bed, and there is just stuff in my head, it is so full, and the bags under my eyes are ginormous. So if I start to lose my voice or something, I've kept some hot tea right there so that I can keep on going. You know, studying, the Luke, studying Luke has given me new eyes for some of the people that were in Jesus' life. You know, Mary, we learned that she lived this life of obedience, and that life of obedience started when God called her through the angel Gabriel, and it led her through her life right up to the foot of the cross where her son became her savior. Do you remember studying that? And then Lynn came and told us about John the Baptist. She told us that he lived this obedient also, I see a theme here, spirit-filled life, and he prepared the way for Jesus to come into the world and begin his ministry that Shelley described as a ministry of shock and awe. I thought that was awesome way to describe it. And you know, Shelley shared with us that Satan attempted and tried his very best to sidetrack our Savior. But, you know, Jesus also stayed obedient to his father. And how did he do it? He used the word of God to thwart off his tempter. Just like we're going to do as we study the word of God. And then last week, the, the lessons kind of changed. We went from learning about the people in Jesus' life to learning about the things that actually that Jesus places his high value on. You know, those things that make his heart beat strong. The things that break his heart. And Amy shared with us last week that his heart... It beats strong and it breaks for the lost. Remember that? We studied Zacchaeus. She told us that, that our Savior will pull out all the stops. He will stop at nothing to rescue us and bring us to his own. You know, this week, Luke revealed to us that Jesus places his high value on the social outcast. You know, the disadvantaged or maybe the underdogs, if you will. And because we know that Luke also, like Jesus, cared about the social outcast. Remember, he was a physician. I think he spends a lot of time throughout his scripture and, and his telling of the gospel showing us just how Jesus responds to each one of the underdogs that he has in his scripture. If you remember that Deb told us in, in week one that, that Luke had this, this audience, he wrote this with the, the Gentile audience in mind. And you know, the Gentiles to the Jews were kind of the underdogs, because if you weren't a Jew, then you were this Gentile, and you weren't a Jew. And that meant you weren't quite as worthy as them, and that made you kind of the underdogs. You know, the word underdog is kind of interesting. Um, a few years back, my family and I, we decided that when we traveled and we would tour anything, you know how they always have to take you on the tour, it ends in the gift shop every time. It drives us wild. Um, but we decided we would stop buying snow globes and spoons and everything else that we just ended up throwing away or whatever after they were worn out. We started buying books. And I know that sounds really boring, but we have found some amazing books. And not just books about where we've been. They have all kinds of books in those gift shops. And one of them that we found was called Why You Say It. The fascinating stories behind over 600 everyday words and phrases. We found this in Virginia, and it was our very first road trip across the United States. And we read this book from cover to cover on the way back. And one of the words in there that it talked about the origin of, it was the word underdogs. 
And I remembered that. So I looked it up, and it was fascinating to me. And I want to share it with you because there's some parts I think are really, really interesting. It said the settlers who were pioneers on the American frontier were usually ready for a brawl. Many of them enjoyed fighting among themselves and, particularly, all made quite a sport of setting lean hounds upon one another. Dog fighting has one significant factor in common with wrestling by humans. In both cases, it is a decided disadvantage to be on the bottom. That was notably the case in the backwards dog, dog fight. When one animal got the other one down, it would start to go for the dog's throat. That's what it was trained to do. And some bystander would have to come in and it would have to intervene in order to save that dog's life. The underdog. The dog underneath. Now, regular references to the losses by canines on the bottom, it caused their title, underdog, to be bestowed on any contestant, two-legged or four-legged, that judged to be disadvantaged in the struggle. See, the underdog was someone who was in need of someone else to step in and save their lives. I love that. I love that. You know, in the scriptures that we read this week, we saw scripture after scripture in the book of Luke that revealed the heart of Jesus for the underdog. I want you to take out your verse sheet, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to have you skip all over the Bible to go through some of these underdogs. I'm just going to go down your list on um, your verse sheet. And we're going to start in Luke 6:20. It said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. See, the poor were needy. They were unsatisfied. None of their needs were being met. Jesus not only met their physical needs, but he met their spiritual needs as well. And then we saw children, the, the little children in Luke 18, 15 through 17. It says, people were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked him. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such of these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. See, these children were immature and they were selfish. Kind of reminds me of my own children. If you've been around children very long or around someone else's children, you realize that even the sweetest child has moments of immaturity and selfishness. It doesn't take very long for it to come out. See, Jesus responded to these children by bring, that were being brought to him. He embraced them. And he not only embraced them, he celebrated their innocence. In fact, he made their pure and innocent faith an example of how we're supposed to seek the kingdom of God. Now, we move on to the tax collectors. And we talked about this guy last week. I'm sure everybody in this room has been singing the song Zacchaeus for two weeks now. In Luke 19, 1 through 6, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming by that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must go to your house today. So he came down at once, and he welcomed him gladly. See, Zacchaeus, we learned last week, was not only the chief tax collector, he was wealthy. And what did Amy tell us last week? That if you were the chief tax collector and you were wealthy, that meant you were probably the chief cheater in town also. You were taking people for everything they had. He would have been extremely greedy... He would have been manipulative. He would have been self-focused on everything about making money for himself. But instead of shunning him because of his great sin, Jesus not only called him by his name, I love that. 
He called him by his name and he went to his home. And we learned last week from Amy that Jesus also led him to repentance and offered him salvation. That's how he responded to the tax collector. And the Samaritans in Luke 9, 51 through 56. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him. And when these disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked those disciples. And they went to another village. See, Jesus was headed to Jerusalem. He's coming upon this, this Samaritan village, okay? And he sends some people out to check and see how he's going to be received. I want to give you a little background on Samaritans. See, I mentioned that the Gentiles were the underdogs to the Jews. I'm just telling you, Samaritans were the lowest of the low to the Jews. Because they were a mixture of Jewish culture and a mixture of Gentile cultures and religions. And they'd taken all this and mixed it all up. And to the Jewish people, even to some of the Gentiles, these people were the lowest of the lows. It didn't get any worse than that. So they sent these messengers out ahead. And they were going to find out that Jesus wasn't going to be received there very welcome, very warmly. And so the disciples decide, in the name of Jesus, they were going to rain fire down on them. In love, of course. In love. <laughs> They were just going to go and rough him up maybe a little bit. But Jesus, no, he steps in and he withholds his own wrath and he protects these people. He protects them from the disciples who are going to rain fire down on them for crying out loud. He wanted them to be protected from the wrath of the disciples. And we move on to the lepers and we see in Luke 17, 11 through 14, now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were healed. See, the lepers, because of this highly contagious disease that they had, they were forced to live way out away from the rest of society. They were isolated. They were lonely. These people needed healing. They had an incurable disease. It was a disease that's been around since be around 600 B.C. It still exists today. Do you know that that disease was so incurable that they didn't even come up with a treatment that kind of helped until 1940? And that, and that treatment hasn't even been perfected yet. In 1980, it got a little better. It still hasn't been perfected. That's how incurable this disease was. And so they knew that this diagnosis was going to completely change your life. If you got that diagnosis, you were going to be forced to live out away from your family and friends till you died with a bunch of other lepers in what they call the leper colony. And there was nothing but misery, and it was just miserable the whole time. It was, it was a, not even just a death sentence. It changed the entire course of your life. See, Jesus healed them, and he gave them a new purpose in life. He changed that course of their life. He changed it completely. Now they were able to go back and live with their families and be in society. They didn't have to live shunned by everyone. And you know, the last but not least by a mile, I love these guys, the shepherds. I love them. 
You know, we read that the shepherds in Luke 2, 8 through 12, it says they were living in the fields nearby, keeping a watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. He went to them first. He said, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. You see, these shepherds were in a very, very humble occupation. You wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have spent much time with the rest of society. You were out with those smelly sheep. And I don't know if you've ever been around sheep, but they're really stinky. And they lived with these sheep out in the hills by themselves. They weren't the shakers and groovers of society. They were out with the sheep. And that didn't stop God one bit. See, God values them. And he revealed his glory to them, not to the royalty, not to the upper crust of society. He went to these lowly shepherds, and and he revealed to them that his very own son was being born and was born for them in the town of David, in Bethlehem. See, each one of these portions of Scripture is the picture of how much value Jesus places on the underdog and it shows us how he responds to them. I see that Luke showed us how God, or Jesus showed compassion on the tax collectors, on the impoverished, the children. You know, and I look at that list and it just makes me go, oh, look at those poor people. I feel so sorry for them. Those lepers have to live out there by themselves. I'm so glad Jesus took care of them. You know, I say them because I look at this list and I don't see anywhere in Luke where it shows that one of the underdogs was a middle class suburban housewife, mother of four. Not at all. I can, I can say I've probably never been impoverished, not by third world standards by any means. I don't think anybody in the United States could even say that. And I've never been a tax collector. I've not even worked for the IRS. It's been a long time since I was a young child. I may have acted like a child, but not a young child. You know, I'm not an outsider. I was born in the United States. In fact, I got to Texas as quickly as I could. As soon as my parents wised up, we moved here. I've never had leprosy, and even growing up on a farm, I was never a shepherd. My dad would never allow us to have sheep. That was considered the lowest of the lows. Now, there may be few of you out here that do fall into one of these categories. I don't know. But it's my guess that Jesus, when he referenced these groups of people... He's not actually actually talking about this specific group of people as much as he's talking about the condition of each one of these groups of people. See, when we stop to look at the conditions of these people and not just the group, things start to look a little more familiar. You know, we see needy, unsatisfied, physical, spiritual needs, unsatisfied. We see greedy, manipulating, and self-serving. We see immature and selfishness. We see isolation, loneliness, and we see people in need of healing. And we see someone stuck in a humble occupation that seems to only be valued by God. I dare say that all of us in this room, at one time or another, can say we fit into one of those categories. I may have not ever been a tax collector, but I can tell you just a few times in my life, in fact, probably this morning, I was kind of greedy and self-serving. I've never had leprosy, but I can tell you, I remember times in my life being isolated and lonely and being in need of healing, not just physically, but spiritually as well. And I can tell you that I've never been that lowly shepherd, but I can definitely remember the year that I quit working full-time to stay home and take care of my babies. 
See, I had spent 10 wonderful, amazing years working side by side with some very amazing medical people. I spent my days using big words, and I was helping people make life-changing decisions in their life. It was, there were issues that come up every day that we had to work on, and it was so amazing. I just, it was adrenaline rush for me. And my husband had this crazy idea that maybe I should sell my practice. <gasps> what? Sell my practice, and why don't you stay home and raise the kids? And so being the submissive wife that God wanted me to be, I said, sure, why not? So I did. And our third child was born shortly and after we made that decision. And then I definitely started feeling isolated and lonely because 15 short months later, my fourth child was born. Not what we had planned at all. And for three years, I lived in what I like to call the fog. Because I, I wouldn't even leave the house. Because I had a toddler and a newborn. And I would wait. I'd either email a list to my husband of what to bring home. Or I would wait till I got home and race to the grocery store as quickly as I could. Because he'd call me as soon as I got there. You need to get home. These kids are making me crazy. <laughs> it was a fog. And there were those rare occasions when I would get to slip out of the house and not go to the grocery store. And we would go to some function for my husband. And I'd be so excited to be talking with, with adults. And I'd get there and they'd be talking about business. And oh, I was so excited. And I realized I had nothing to interject into that conversation. Except what kind of diapers do you buy? What kind of pacifiers? How do you potty train? Or how the diaper genie had revolutionized my life. Nothing. I had nothing to give to these conversations. And it was the most humbling year of my life. I was in this, what I considered a lowly occupation. And now I know that God values that occupation just as much as he does those lowly shepherds out on the hill. See, our response to the underdog, it's frequently one of disdain and contempt. And we judge them. We look at them, oh, look at them. But Jesus' response was one of compassion and mercy. And according to the verses, he didn't address just their physical needs. And more importantly, he went straight to their spiritual needs as well. See, his heart broke for these people. It was because he knew the conditions of their heart. And he could see the sin in each one of them. He knew that they needed more than physical healing. They needed to be healed spiritually too. He saw them as sinners in need of a Savior. And when, and when the righteous people looked at him... They may have looked at them with scorn and disgust and disdain, but Christ looked at them as sinners in need of a Savior. They were underdogs, and they needed someone to step in and save their lives. And that's exactly what God did when he sent Jesus, his son, to die for our sins on the cross. He sent him to save the lives of the sinful man because Satan had taken man down, and he was about to go for his throat. And here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus to save the hero. You know, one of my favorite songs, it's a song by Casting Crowns, and I'm not, don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. Nobody has to panic. It's called Jesus, Friend of Sinners. The song tells us about Jesus' great compassion for, this, for the underdogs, for us, for each one of us. I'm going to read you just a little bit of it because I want you to hear the words of it. It says, Jesus, Friend of Sinners, we have strayed so far away. We cut down people in your name, but the sword was never ours to swing. Jesus, friend of sinners, the truth's become so hard to see. The world is on the way to you, but they're tripping over me. I'm always looking around and never looking up. I'm a double-minded, plank-eyed saint with dirty hands and a heart divided. 
Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, open our eyes to the world around our pointing fingers. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach out with open hearts and open doors. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Jesus, friend of sinners, the one who's riding in the sand made the righteous turn away and the stones fall from their hand. Help us to remember that we were the least of these. Let the memory of your mercy bring your people to their knees. Nobody knows what we're for, only what we're against when we judge the wounded. What if we put down our signs, we cross over the lines, and we love like you did? You love every lost cause. You reach out for the outcast. For the leper and the lame, they're the very reason that you came. Lord, I was that lost cause, and I was that outcast. But you died for me. You died for sinners just like me, a grateful leper at your feet. You see, in God's eyes, we were all underdogs at one time in our lives. We were in need of a Savior to come in and save us because Satan had us down and he had us by, about to go for our throat. You see, I, I love as Ted put it in past in one of his sermons. and This has stuck with me for at least two years now once he said it. He said that Jesus didn't hang on the cross an extra 20 minutes for that fill in the blank, whatever it is that makes you point your finger. Jesus didn't hang on the cross 20 extra minutes to save that, that drug addict. And Jesus didn't hang 20 extra minutes on that cross to save that alcoholic. Jesus didn't hang on the cross 20 extra minutes to save that greedy, manipulative, manipulative housewife. Or that self-focused and self-serving mother. He hung there the same time for all of us. Because in God's eyes, it's all the same. In Paul's letter to Romans 3, verse 22 through 24, in your verse sheet, it says, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. All who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You know, it kind of reminds me of a saying that I used to have when I was a kid. I was the youngest of three, and I had two older brothers. So most of my life was just a survival. It was just trying to survive something being thrown at me or being held down with spit coming at me or something <laughs> awful, awful. But I had one of my favorites, of course, I couldn't use all the time was, uh, I'm rubber and you're glue. I don't know if you ever heard this one. It's a good one. Problem with I'm rubber and you're glue, whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you, it's too long. I could barely get rubber and glue out, and I was on the run. And they heard nothing else I said. So I came up with one, and it's been around for years. It's, oh, yeah, takes one to know one. Because, you know, that's when you can say, oh, yeah, and then you can take off running. And you can yell it as you're running. It's not real complicated. So I used that one a lot. And I would say, yeah, well, it takes one to know one. Well, I think that's exactly what Paul was saying in his letter to the Romans. It takes one to know one. See, the cross levels the playing field. There should be no pointing fingers because the scripture said we've all fall short of the glory of God. We are all underdogs at one time. And, in, and, and work with me here. If, if Jesus' response with the underdog is one of mercy and compassion, and as we just identified that we were all underdogs at one time, in need of someone to step in and save our lives, just like Jesus did by dying on the cross for our sins, then, as an underdog, what should our response be? What should our response be to Jesus for what he done, he's done for us? Let's look at Luke uh, 17 
And I'm going to read through the story of the, the ten lepers. We, we studied this this week. I'm going to read through 11 through 19. You can follow along in your Bible. It says, Now on his way to Jerusalem, <clears throat> Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Ew. That's what the crowd had been doing. Ew, a Samaritan. And Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner, this Samaritan? And then he said to him, Rise and go, your faith has made you well. These lepers in their humble position in society, I'm sure, recognized that they needed to be healed. They lived with this every single day. And I'm sure the, the story of Jesus had gotten out, and they knew that this was probably their best shot. So they go out and they call to him and they ask him to be healed. You know, like the lepers, we should humble ourselves and we should also recognize that we need to be healed. And like those lepers, go to the one who can truly do it. Truly heal us, not just physically, but spiritually as well. Now, we read that Jesus healed ten lepers and only one responded in the way I think that we're supposed to respond to Christ's mercy and compassion. Nine of them went on about their business like nothing had happened. I'm not sure what they did, but it wasn't, it wasn't recordable apparently, because it's not in here. But one of them, one of them returned, he dropped to his knees at Jesus' feet, and with this loud voice and a thankful heart, he praised God. He recognized who had truly healed him. And then it says, he was a Samaritan. (gasps) Samaritan? Why would he use that? Why would he be the one? Now, regardless of this one leper was, regardless, I'm not sure if this was the only leper I mean, Samaritan leper. I don't know. I don't know. The others may have been Samaritans too. I think he might have been the only one. It didn't say they were lepers and one, or one was a Samaritan and he came back. Or, or it just said that one was a Samaritan. Not all ten. It said that one was a Samaritan. So it tends to make me think he was the only Samaritan. And you know what? That made him double low life. He wasn't just a leper shunned from society. He was a Samaritan leper. Ew. It was like it was like the worst of the worst. But regardless, you know, I think he knew who to praise and he knew who to thank because he saw the depth of his healing. And I think he did that because he recognized himself as the lowest of the lows. He recognized how far he had come and how much he had to be healed from. And that caused him to respond with praise and thanksgiving. You know, if we're in Christ, we've been healed spiritually as well. We should respond with praise and thanksgiving, just like this Samaritan. Then Jesus tells this guy, he says, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Okay, what does that mean? I don't think it meant for him to just get up and go and go about his business anymore. See, God had changed. Jesus had changed the course of his entire life. I think he meant to rise and go out with his grateful heart and live like someone whose life had just been spared. Have you ever talked to someone who's just near, near, narrowly escaped death? I heard interviews on the news. What do they almost always say? Something to the effect of, man, it just made me realize what was really important in life. 
Made them stop to reevaluate their priorities and what they should do. See, as Christ followers, we've been saved from death and eternal separation from God. We should live like our lives have been spared from eternal separation from God. Like someone who has just narrowly escaped death. That alone should cause us to reevaluate our own priorities in our life. We should set out with this new purpose in life. Because he's changed the course of our life by saving us. And our new purpose as a life, as a new creature in Christ, is to have a heart that beats as one with Christ. That means it beats strong for things, that his heart beats strong. That also means his heart, our hearts break for what breaks his heart. You know, Paul says in the second letter to the in the Corinthians in chapter 5 verse 17, it's on your verse sheet, it says, Therefore, anyone who is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. See, he's telling them that this follows of Christ, you're not the underdogs anymore. You're victorious. You're new creation, so go out and live like it for goodness sake. Let the world see it in everything you say and everything you do. But what is it? What does that look like? What does that look like when I wake up tomorrow morning to live like I'm victorious in Christ? Well, I'm going to look at Luke 10. If you'll move back in Luke to Luke 10. And I'm going to start at verse 25. I'm going to read the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. Probably one of the most familiar parables next to the prodigal son of any of the parables in the Bible. You know, there's even a Good Samaritan law written that tells if you come upon someone who's been injured you can't be sued if something you do doesn't you know causes further injury or whatever it protects you so you don't hesitate to stop and render aid to someone so this is one of the most known familiar parables in the bible follow along i'm just going to read um the first uh say four verses starting at verse 25 on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? The, the expert answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now, this expert is challenging Jesus. He, the commentaries call him a lawyer or a teacher, but he would have been well-versed in the Old Testament law. And I personally love how Jesus pulled a Dr. Phil on him. I love how he asked, answered his question with a question. He not only answered his question with a question, he answered it with two questions. And I think the local expert loved this, because this was going to give him this moment to spout off this law that he knew. And so he does, and he tells him how he should live his life. And what he tells him is exactly how we should live our life. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This wasn't something new to him. It wasn't something that came up, something new law that he had thought up. It was actually something he had learned in the Old Testament law. If you look on your verse sheet, Deuteronomy 6, Verses 5 through 6. Moses is giving this commandment to the Israelites. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Sounds familiar. And then Moses is passing on some other laws in Leviticus 19 verse 18. And it says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbors as yourself. I am the Lord. So this wasn't any new idea he'd come up with. 
And I think Jesus was trying to lead him to realize that even though he knew the law, the execution of the law was falling severely short of the mark. Now I want to stop a minute here and address something before we move on. There was a portion of the scripture that had bothered me. And it was the uh, do this and you will live. I read this and it really bothered me. I don't know if it bothered anybody else. But it, it sounded like that is how we received eternal life. Was through doing loving, you know, by loving our neighbor. It sounded kind of works based to me. And that was bothering me. So I spent some time on that. And I, and I finally after pondering on it, I realized that if I took that whole law... And I, and I looked at it, it said that if I love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength, that means that I'm also going to love his only son who he sent, and I'm going to believe that in the redemptive work of what his son did for me on the cross. Because, see, we know that our eternal life doesn't come from our works. It comes from the redemptive work that, that Christ did on the cross. We see in Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, it says, For it is great, by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. See, our works are merely the fruit of our belief in Christ's redemptive work for us on the cross. They don't actually give us the eternal life. But I think what it does is helps us look at that verse a little bit differently. I think when Jesus says, do this and you will live, he's not only talking about the eternal life that you're going to get by believing in Christ's work. I think he's also saying that if you live and follow my commandments and my laws, you're going to live so abundantly. Your life is going to be so full. In John 10, 10b, it says, Christ came that we may have life and have it to the full. He knew that if we were obedient to his laws, that our life would be more full. It would be more abundant. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking the prosperity gospel here at all. I'm not saying by this that you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and, and problem-free all your life. It's not what I'm talking about. But it does say that he will give us the peace that passes all understanding to deal with every circumstance that comes into our lives. So as this new creation in Christ, we should love God with everything we have. With everything, our thoughts, our words, our time, our resources, everything that we have. Do you, any of you remember the first time you fell in love with someone? Do you remember that? I mean, they consumed your thoughts. And they consumed your conversations. Every conversation, you would interject them into it. And you loved more than anything to spend time with them doing things that they love to do. Even if something that you could care less about doing, and it may be ever never done in your life. But you wanted to do it with them because you made them smile. And it made them happy. See, that's how it is with us, with Christ. Is this new creation in Christ, our thoughts should be consumed with him. He should be in all of our conversations. And we should start to find ourselves wanting to do the things that brings a smile to our Savior's face. We love God with everything we have. And that means our hearts will begin to beat as one with his. And our hearts will also break when his, heart's bro his heart breaks. You know, verse 27 then goes on to say, and love your neighbor as yourselves. Wow, that first part is kind of easy. That second part, that's messy. I've been there. It gets complicated. It gets messy. It gets scary. It's not always fun. It messes up my schedule. And it's not what I want to do. Not at all. 
But that, friends, is where the rubber meets the road. That's where your tennies are going to hit the track because your, your words, your actions, are going to have to meet up with your words. You know, I read a letter once. It was written by a young man named Charles. And he was writing to this girl he was courting, this beautiful woman he's courting. And he has wrote this eloquent letter. And at the very end, he says this. He said, I would climb the highest mountain for you. I would swim the deepest river for you. I'd cross the widest sea for you. I'd even cross the burning desert for you. Love always, Charles. P.S. If it's not raining next Wednesday and time permits, I'll come see you. See, his, word, his actions weren't meeting up with his words. You know, it's, it's, like the, it's like that part of the song that I told you, read to you earlier. It says, the world is on the way to you, but they're tripping over me. I'm so double-minded. I'm a plank-eyed saint with dirty hands and a heart divided. When one of these things is not like the other, then people, we cause people to question the love of God. And question how strong our God really is. We fall short in our job, what we were made for, and that's bringing God glory in our lives. Now I want to finish up. I'm going to actually read the rest of the Good Samaritan. I want you to follow along as I read verse 29 through 37. It says, But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. He passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, Samaritan, as he traveled, he came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You know, the expert who wanted nothing more than the trip Jesus up and showed just how brilliant he really was, he actually asked the next question again. He steps out there and he says, who's my neighbor? So Jesus answers him and he tells him this story, this parable about the Good Samaritan. He says there's this man, and most commentaries believe this was probably a Jewish man, was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Now this is a road that's considered very dangerous because it descends 3,000 feet and only 17 miles. Not only is it dangerous because of the quick descent and altitude, it also was a place where robbers could hide in the rocks. And that's exactly what happened. This man was robbed, he was stripped, he was beaten, and he was left for dead. And along comes a Jewish priest. Now, he's probably leaving the temple for the day, and this is someone we would expect to love everyone else. And he happens upon this man who's been beaten to a pulp, pulp, and instead of stopping to tend to him, he not only just passes by, he crosses to the other side and then avoids contact with this man. Now, in his defense... For a priest who had just left the temple, touching a dead body was a huge deal. Okay, they, It would take days of cleansing, and he would have had to go through all this. But you know what? Come on. God's law of love your neighbor as yourselves, it trumps the cleansing laws any day. He should have stopped to help this guy. 
Next down this danger road, here comes the Levite. Levites are Jewish descendants who came from the tribe of Levi. He probably was coming from the temple also. He does the same thing. He crosses to the other side and moves on without, a, without contact with this man as well. Next comes the Samaritan. Now in this portion of the parable, there were the gasps. How dare he? How dare he use a Samaritan as the one that's going to stop? Because remember, they were the scorned. They were the underdogs. This guy not only stops, and not only stays on the same side of the road, he stops, he cares for him, he puts him on his donkey, he takes him to an inn, he pays the man for his care, and then he promises on top of that, I'll come back through and I'll cover anything that it costs you out of your pocket. He was going to pay this man's debt in full, completely. Now, I'm pretty sure at this point, the local expert was wanting to just slide out of the room don't you think? And just kind of sneak out and disappear. But then Jesus asked him, so which one was the one that was the neighbor to the guy that was robbed? And the expert, I'm sure, a lot more humble, hopefully, answered the one who showed mercy on him. You know, the word neighbor today, it's most frequently described as someone who lives near you or close to you or you live in the neighborhood. But Jesus' definition, which of course is the one that counts, right? His says that it's anyone that God brings into our path. Anyone, and that doesn't mean physically into my path. That can be someone that God brings through my life. And that person that God brings through my life may live in another country, another city. It doesn't mean someone that you physically see. You know, the outcast the outsider, he drew near to the man and he saved his life. This is a perfect picture of how we're supposed to share God's love with everyone that God brings into our lives, into our path. But it's also a picture of Christ's amazing sacrifice for us to save us from eternal death and separation from God. See, the priest and the Levite, they represented rep, uh, ritualism, ceremonialism, legalism. All these things man had made and they, it fell short. It just wasn't doing it for them. But the Samaritan, the outcast, the underdog, he was Christ. He was Christ who took on the life of the underdog to come save the underdog. See, in this parable, Christ shows us how to be the ultimate neighbor. And then he simply just says, go and do the same. Do you notice he didn't spend the next hour and a half quantifying on the do's and don'ts of how to lavish your, God's love on people that he brings in your path? He didn't say, well, you know, if they don't, if they're from a different race or, you know, if it looks like it might be dangerous or whatever. He just simply said, go and do the same. The Samaritan was ready to lavish God's love on anyone that God brought into his path. And we should be ready to lavish God's love on, and his mercy on anyone who comes into our life. Anyone that crosses our path. See, the Samaritan didn't allow the circumstances to frighten him. He didn't, he didn't allow time to stop and judge the person's circumstances or maybe how he got into this problem. He didn't judge where he came from. He didn't look at the fact that he was not one of them. He just jumped in and tended to his knees. Ladies, if you have placed your trust in Christ's redemptive work, then you are a new creation in Christ. 
your old self has passed away and you've been restored to this new creation. We should recognize that there was a time in our lives when we were in God's eyes an underdog. We needed someone to step in and save our lives as well. We have victory in Christ. Please go out and live like you're victorious. Be victorious. The knowledge of this should cause us to respond with this heart of thanksgiving. And it should cause our hearts to beat as one with Christ. And our prayer should always be, Jesus, friend of sinners, break my heart for what breaks yours. Please pray with me. Precious Father, I just I thank you for these women. I thank you that they want to know your word. Lord, I pray that you would just make it real in their lives and that you would show them each and every day how to take your word and how to love, lavish your love on anyone that you bring into their lives, Lord. Father, I pray that you go with us as we leave from here and you show us places that you want us to step in and lavish your love on them. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen.